You're listening to the Strategies at Work podcast for July 2012. Today's episode is titled Promotion and the Peter Principle. In the 1969 book The Peter Principle, Dr. Lawrence Peter and Raymond Hull presented what is known as the Peter Principle, which states that people tend to be promoted until they reach a level that is beyond their ability to completely function. Though the principle is a satirical hypothesis, it is not without basis. The essence of the principle seems to be a pedestrian reality in most organizations. As people are promoted, management seems to give little consideration to God's purpose for people. Promotion decisions are based on perceived potential. Anytime a person works outside his or her design, there is little or no favor, grace, revelation, and wisdom. This leads to dysfunctional performance. But when people work congruent with their design, there is favor, grace, revelation, and wisdom. This produces excellent performance. And now, Dr. Chester brings us the message titled, Parable of the Minas. Well, today we're going to talk about the Parable of the Minas. The Parable of the Minas is a, a unique parable. It's only found in the Gospel of Luke. And what we want to do with this parable is we want to continue Terry's theme, talking about money. You want to talk about money? Would you like a biblical perspective of money? You know, I have taught frequently on this topic over the years, and every time I touch it, I'm overwhelmed with it. You know why I'm overwhelmed with it? Hmm? Always learn something new, but there's so much in Scripture about it. You start looking at all the texts that you can, you find lessons on money. It's just, it's almost overwhelming. Uh, Some people have estimated over 2,000 texts in Scripture dealing with money. It is a huge topic in Scripture. So there's a lot to be said, a lot to be gleaned, a lot to be understood. So this morning, we're just going to try to take a little snippet of it and give you some more biblical thinking about money. The way I'm going to do this is talk about the parable of Minas. And to introduce that, I'm going to set the context by reading the verses that precede the parable. Verses uh, 1 through 11 in chapter 19 of Luke are the story of Zacchaeus, which most of you probably know from, from Sunday school days. How many of you have, have heard the story of Zacchaeus? You hear the story? Most of you are familiar with that? Okay. So... You're familiar with it, so we're going we're gonna to talk about it. I'm going to share maybe a few things that you maybe haven't thought about the story that maybe will bring it a little more alive to you, and we'll set the context for the parable of the Minas. So Luke chapter 19, verses 1 through 11. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. By the way, the name Zacchaeus in Hebrew means pure. As far as we know, he was not a Jew, he was a Gentile, and he was the tax collector in that district. He was the chief tax collector and was wealthy. And back in those days, being a tax collector meant you could be wealthy because you could extort, and that's what they did. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but being a short man, he could not because of the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore tree to see him. Notice that the tax collector had no standing. You know, if we were uh, watching some kind of parade and some person of respect came along, what would we do? We'd move away so they could come up. But you see, Zacchaeus didn't enjoy that. He was wealthy, but he had no standing. So when Jesus came to the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. Now, that's a rather strange statement, isn't it? 
I must stay at your house today? Now, why would Jesus have to do that? Well, I think we have to understand Jesus' worldview, his view of reality. Jesus was living to do one thing, and that was do the will of the Father. He said, I only do what I see the Father doing. I only speak what I hear the Father saying. He was so closely connected to the Father that that's all that mattered. And he knew that the Father was executing an overarching plan in history. You ever thought about why we're here? We just a product of slime and time? Is there something just just accident? You know, a lot of people will say, well, I was just an accident. No, there's no accidents. God has a plan and a purpose. Everybody fits into that plan and purpose. Jesus was keenly aware of that. That's what was driving him. He was looking for his role, his place in the plan. And he was looking to do what God had put him here to do, very specifically. So on this day, in this place, he was assigned to interact with Zacchaeus. I must be in your house today. That's what the Father has directed me to do. That's what he's saying here. So he says, so come down at once. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. Isn't that a good way to welcome Jesus? Gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter. Now these people, who are these people? Well, probably a lot of them were his followers. Maybe his disciples, most likely his disciples. So they're there muttering. Now why are they muttering? Because what's happening doesn't fit their worldview. You see, that's what's going on. Jesus' worldview is tuned in with the Father, and the followers are not. Which illustrates how you can be in the presence of Jesus and not understand reality. Yeah, think about that one, don't you? You think, well, I'm in the presence of Jesus, everything's cool. Well, it's good to be in his presence, but you need to understand reality. You need to see it as Jesus saw it and to live as Jesus lived. So these people saw and they began to mutter, he's gone into the, to be a guest with a, a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up. So they're in the house now. He stood up and said to the Lord, look, Lord. And that's a, that's a brave comment, isn't it? You got Jesus there and all these people around there. He stands up and says, look, Lord, you better have something good to say, Zacchaeus. Here and now, I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Now, that's pretty amazing. That is unbelievable. Here's a guy driven by greed, money. He is extorted. He's abused people all for money. And now, because he's encountered Christ, his view of money has changed. The way he uses money has changed. You see, that's one of the evidences that you really know the Lord, is that your view and use of money changes. You don't use the money like the world uses money, and you don't view it like the world views it. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because this man, too, is the son of Abraham. You see, his salvation was not based on his work of what he was going to do with the money. It was based on him being a son of Abraham. Now, being a son of Abraham is explained in Romans chapter 4, which we don't have time to read. So I'll just tell you what it says. Romans 4 says this, that Abraham 
believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Meaning that his standing before God was not based on his works. It was based on the work of Christ. And now, because of this standing in Christ, then Abraham is walking out the reality of being right with God. And so anybody that walked like that was a son of Abraham. You see, in in Christianity, it's the only worldview where you don't do the work to be acceptable with your God. God did the work for you. It's the only worldview where God died for you. Every other worldview, you die for God. But in this worldview, God died for you first, and then you get to live as a life, as a servant, a living sacrifice. So he is the son of Abraham, meaning he has embraced Christ on the basis of faith. And when you embrace Christ based on faith, it changes how you view and use money. For the son of man, referring to Christ himself, came to seek and to save what was lost. He's telling you again, I am here on a mission. I am here to do the will of the Father, and it fits into what God is doing, this overarching story we call the meta-narrative. By the way, it's a clue for all of us. You want to find out why you're here? You start by learning about the meta-narrative, learning about what God is doing, and then you begin to ask God, what's my role? How do I play in your play? How do I, what bit part do I have in your play? And guess what? It, whatever part it is, it counts because God made you to do it. That's why in the kingdom of God, everybody's important. Everybody counts. Then he says, while they were listening to this, that is, Jesus is with all this crowd. While they were listening to what he's saying, he went on to tell them a parable because he was near Jerusalem. And the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. They thought, okay, here it is. The king has finally come to, ta- to rescue us from the Roman Empire, and now we will restore the kingdom that we had back when David was king and Solomon was king. So that's what they were looking for, which shows you they didn't understand the meta narrative. Jesus knew the time was not now for that to happen. It's going to happen, but it's not now. And so now he loves his people so much that he says, okay, you're around me and you're walking with me, but you don't get it. So I'm going to explain it to you in a story. And what he uses here is a story that would be very well understood to them. In the Roman Empire, when they captured countries, if you won favor with the emperor, you did some feat that he liked, you sent him money, or you did something that brought him favor, brought favor from him, you could go to Rome and apply to become king. That's pretty neat, isn't it? Hey, I'd like to be king of Plano. So get help to Washington to see if I can apply to be king. Okay, But the subjects in Plano have the right to send a delegation up to Washington and protest. Okay, Now, see, that's foreign to us, but that was very common. They understood that practice. So he's going to use that reality to explain this parable. Okay, let's make a, just a few background comments here. First of all, the setting here is near the end of Jesus' life. His life is nearly over. Arguably, he's within two weeks of the crucifixion. The venue is Zacchaeus' home in Jericho. Jesus' agenda is to do the will of the Father by fulfilling his destiny. And 
what I'm going to, a term I'm going to use today is to do the will of God according to the ways of God. And I'm going to explain that more fully in a minute, but just a quick explanation. To what, I, what I mean by that phrase is the will of God is the specific purpose that God has for you. You have an individual, specific, personal purpose that God has ordained you to fulfill. And then the ways of God are the means by which you go about fulfilling that purpose, the means and methods. We like to talk about biblical worldview. That's a great way to look at it. I want to do everything according to a biblical worldview, biblical principles, biblical values, a biblical philosophy. And so that's what Jesus was all about. He was about doing the will of God according to the ways of God. Now, his followers weren't that that mature. And so their agenda was all about their will. They were very myopic. They were just looking at their situation and their generation. Jesus was looking over time at multiple generations, the whole, all of the generations of time. And he was looking at what God was doing in his role in that big picture. And these people here were focused on what's in it for me. You know, that's what we say today, what's in it for me? You know, I, today I think we live as M&M people. Okay, and I'm not talking about the candy. You know what M&M stands for? Me and money. That's what it's about, me and money, isn't it? Huh? Well, we know it's not. that's true, but that's how we tend to live. And so that's where these people were. So Jesus loves his followers so much that even though they're in his presence and they're totally confused, he's saying, I'm going to help you understand. I'm going to explain reality to you. So they've got this misperception about the timing of the physical kingdom. And so he tells them this parable. So just some comments here to note. Though they're in the presence of Christ, the followers had a wrong view of reality. Is that clear? They didn't understand reality. Okay. And what do you think Jesus came to understand what he did about this, this timing thing about the kingdom. Where do you think he got that? How about the Old Testament? Reading and studying the Old Testament, looking for the truth of, of, of what he needed to live through Scripture. And by the way, the Old Testament was his Scripture. All right, Jesus sought to correct the misunderstanding through a parable. A parable is a short allegorical story designed to illustrate or teach some truth And he used a common Roman practice, what I just described to you about how a person would become a king. So he's using things that they would relate to and they would understand. Another thing, just just real quickly, most of us have heard about the kingdom of God. If you've been around here any length of time, you've heard us talk about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is a very complex topic. And in this a short presentation like this, there's not time to give you all the the details of it. So I'm just going to give you an overview of it real quickly in about two or three minutes just to remind you and maybe help you kind of get a different perspective. First of all, the definition of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is the rule and reign of God. That's primarily what it means. Now, some of the characteristics of the kingdom of God. Number one, the gospel of the kingdom was the gospel of Jesus and the apostles. You know, our gospel today tends to be a different gospel. We tend to focus on, you need Christ so you'll, you'll go to heaven instead of going to hell. That's what we like to focus on. That's called the gospel of heaven. That's not a complete gospel. The complete gospel is the gospel of bringing the rule and reign of Christ into everything of life. That's the gospel of the kingdom. To do that, you have to know Christ. You have to be transformed by him. You have to be led by the Spirit. You have to live according to a biblical worldview doing your assignment in the meta narrative. So the gospel of the kingdom is a very comprehensive gospel. Well, it was the gospel Jesus taught. It was the gospel that 
that Paul taught. You remember in Acts 1, Jesus is getting ready to to be ascended. Remember what it says that, that he was there talking to them about before his ascension? And do you think this might be a really important thing? I'm getting ready to go, so let's zero in on what's really important. Don't you think he would do that? Would you do that? You're getting ready to go, and you need to get your followers to be sure they really get it. What do you think he talked about? He talked about the kingdom. That's what he talked about. So that tells you how important it was to him. Then you have the entrance, the entrance into the kingdom of God. The religious people don't come in. Religious people are people that just go through the form, but there's no internal reality. Okay, They don't get in. The rich people, they don't get in because they're depending on the riches. Who gets in? The children. And we're not talking about literal children. It's a, it's a, it's a metaphor. People who are teachable, who are humble, who are submitted to authority, who are moldable. These are the kind of people that get into the kingdom. How about the value of the kingdom? It's worth more than any physical asset you could come up with. I don't care what it is. It is the most valuable thing that exists, is getting, is understanding and walking to the kingdom of God. The authority of the kingdom. We have incredible authority in the kingdom that I think we understand very little about. It's, it's called binding and loosing. There have been a lot of people trying to talk about that in the last 20 years. I don't know that I've heard anybody with a profound understanding yet, but I know the Holy Spirit's going to show us that in time. There are rewards for sacrificing. In other words, when you give up things to line up with the rule and reign of God, you will be blessed. You'll be incredibly blessed. Blessed far beyond you can, what you can imagine. There's a present reality of the kingdom. It's near. It's in you. It's righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. These are This is a present thing you can walk in. But there's also a future reality of the kingdom. And that's what he's talking about here in Luke 19. It's the future reality. When is it going to happen and what, what's happening in the meantime? So let's go on to the parable here. And I apologize, there's not enough time to, to give this parable really a good exposition so I'm going to I'm going to go through it fairly quickly to get to the points we're trying to make today. He said a man of noble birth. By the way the the in the original language the word here is just man. The noble birth is inferred because he's obviously a landowner and he had slaves. A man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then to return. So he called 10 of his servants and gave them 10 minas. So he gave each servant a mina. A mina was about three months of wages for a, a farm worker in those days. He said, put this work, money to work. Now, that is actually one Greek word. You understand the New Testament was written in Greek. Everybody knows that? Okay, well, this is one Greek word. This is the word pragmatiomai. So what does that sound like to you? Pragmatic, okay? And pragmatism is largely, in the workplace, the worldview that's embraced. In other words, in the workplace, what happens is, what is it that works? And we know that from things like, look at business schools. What do business, how do business schools teach what they teach? They use case studies, right? They don't try to teach you a lot of theory because they don't know the theory. What they're doing is just looking out there and see what works. Guess what? If you know Jesus, you have access to the theory. Yeah, you do. You have access to the theory. You can learn the principles of business. 
You know in Isaiah 28, it says that God made the rules of farming? Do you know that? Wish we had time to go there. But just take a look at the end of Isaiah 28. You'll see it says God made the rules of farming from sowing the seed, growing the harvest, to harvesting it, to even processing. He made it all. And he teaches the farmers how it works. Well, if that's true for farmers, isn't it true of us? Whatever business you're in, God made the rules. So if you have access to him by virtue of knowing Jesus Christ and having the Holy Spirit and the Word of God, you have a leg up on everybody else because you can learn the theory. So now the case studies will illustrate the theory. You won't have to lean on the case studies. You'll lean on the theory. It's a different approach. So we're told to pragmatiomai, that is, conduct business with these assets until I come back. But as subjects, now these are a different group of people. We have the slaves and you have the subjects. And by the way, in the first century, the slaves did the work because citizens didn't work. It was just the slaves. So he's talking about workers here. But his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, we don't want this man to be our king. He was made king, however, and he returned home. Then he sent for the servants to whom he had given the money. Now here he doesn't say minor, he says money, and actually the word is silver. In order to find out what they had gained. You see, he was looking for a profit. And obviously, it was a profit from his perspective. It's important to realize that the servants didn't get to find what a prophet was. They didn't get to define, you know, how they would please the master. The master defined it. That's an interesting twist, isn't it? So here, what happens next is the first one came and said, Sir, your mina has earned ten more. That's a nice way to put it, isn't it? Your mina has earned ten more. It wasn't, look how, look how great I am. Look what I did. Your mina has earned ten more. He says, well done, my good servant. By the way, that word good there, there are two words for good in the Greek. That particular word is a word that means intrinsically good. Okay? The two words are, are, are illustrated in uh, Matthew chapter 7, where he says, a good tree bears good fruit. Remember that text? Y'all seen that text? A good tree bears good fruit? Well, the, it's literally the first word for good is agathos, okay, which means intr- intrinsically by nature good. The second word for good, okay, is kalos, and that means the fruit of something good, the product of something intrinsically good. So it really reads, an agathos tree bears kalos fruit. You see the difference there? So here he uses the word agathos. He's saying. You have demonstrated that your agathos, your your nature inherently is good because you have done what I ask you to do. Because you've been trustworthy in a very small matter, what would you do? What would we do today if somebody, you know, we gave somebody something, they took it, they stewarded it the way we liked it, we liked their return, what would we do? We'd give them a little bonus, wouldn't we? Yeah, you get to keep part of that. What's Jesus do? Oh, you've been very faithful in a small matter. Take charge of 10 cities. Wow. That's a pretty good promotion, isn't it? How do you do that? Well, the kingdom of God operates under different rules. Okay. Then he goes on. The second one came and said, sir, your mind has earned five more. His master answered, you take charge of five cities. Wow. Then another servant came and said, sir, here is your mina. I have kept it hidden away in a piece of cloth. Now, If you were going to hide money, which, by the way, in the first century, they didn't have banks like we have. So when you had money, you had to take care of it. So you would generally put it in some kind of container and you'd bury it in the floor of your home. 
you wouldn't just put it in a cloth. You would take better care of it than that. So this servant is showing that he's not agathos. He's not doesn't have a good nature. There's something wrong with him. He is mistreating what he's been charged to do. He said to, to Jesus, I was afraid of you because you're a hard man. You take out what you do not put in, reap what you do not sow. Now, those are fishing and farming metaphors. Okay? Taking out what you have put in, you know, has to do with taking fish out of the catch, but you didn't do anything to, to catch that fish. And, and reaping what you didn't sow means you're taking farm produce that you didn't, you didn't actually grow. So he's really being, uh, you know, kind of hard-nosed here. But his master replied, I will judge you by your own words. You know, he doesn't even deal with it. He just said, okay, I'll give you that. So we'll judge you by your own words. You wicked servant. By the word, that word wicked is the word we get pornography from. Okay? You wicked servant. You knew, did you, that I am a hard man, taking out what I do not put in and reaping what I do not sow. Why then didn't you put my money on deposit so that when I came back, I would have collected it with interest? Now, the only way that I know of from studying what I've studied, that you could put done what Jesus said here, is that you would have to put the money with the money changers. The money changers were effectively the ones that you would that did business, and they would take your money, and they would pay you to take your money and use it in their business. So that presumably what he had in mind here. Then he said to those standing by, take his minor away from him and give it to the one who has ten minors. They said, whoa. What's going on here? Sir, they said, he already has 10. He replied, I tell you, to everyone who has, more will be given. But as for the one who has nothing, even what he has will be taken away. Now, this is one of the principles of the kingdom. I mean, you could say use it or lose it. That's another way to look at it. It's a common expression today. But it's a reality. If we don't faithfully steward our mina, then we're going to lose it. But those enemies of mine who did not want me to be king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. I wouldn't want to be in that group. That would not be a fun group. All right, so let's look at some interpretation here. So let's look at first, who's the master would be king? Well, I think in this analogy here, it's obviously Christ. The servants are professing Christians. Oh, by the way, only two of the three were faithful. The mina given to the servants by the master could represent a lot of things, but Today we're talking primarily about money, so let's just look at what I call T3, time, talent, and treasure. And we're going to focus on treasure. So that's what they've been given. Time is your life. You know, your life is not your own. You didn't decide when you, you were born, and you really won't decide when you will die. You didn't decide what skill and ability you have, your talent, and you, you really don't control your financial affairs, although you might think you do. You know, you don't set your standard of living. You don't decide what opportunities will come your way. You don't decide, you know, how you how you will develop your business, etc. Ultimately, God's in charge of all these things. So we're we're here. We're given this time, talent, treasure, this T three, and we're charged to steward it. So that's the pragmatia my proactively steward the T three. Now you see, the one who was unfaithful, he tried to deal with it passively. I'm not going to do anything. I'm just going to put it away. Jesus said it would have been better if you passively given it to the bankers. You didn't even do that. Rebellious subjects, these are people who do not know Christ today. The king's return home is Christ's return for judgment and rewards. You know, he's going to come back for both. The period between leaving and returning is the present age. 
the accountability for the stewarding the minus. Okay, that is the basis for which we're going to be held account, and we will be given an account based on how faithfully we stewarded our time, our talent, and our treasure. And again, this gets back to doing the will of God with it, according to the ways of God. And if we faithfully steward, there will be steward it. We'll, there will be a reward in the future age. Now, this word for faithful here is a word, uh, a Greek word, pistis, which means to be. To, we translate it a lot of different ways: faith, faithfulness, trustworthiness, etc. But it literally means to be trustworthy in business or trustworthy in execution of commands or the discharge of official duties. God has given you a T3, time, talent, and treasure. Your job is to faithfully discharge his will, do his will according to his ways with that T3. Okay, so from the parable, what can we learn about stewarding our T3? Number one, you and your T3 belong to your master. They're not yours. You're not your own. You didn't create yourself. You didn't give yourself your own time, talent, treasure. That's all been given to you. Your T3 was assigned to you by your master. God has a specific purpose for you. So if you're unhappy with what you think is your lot in life, then you need to talk to the Lord because he made you for the journey you're on to do what he's called you to do in the context that he's created you. Your responsibility is to use your T3 to gain a profit that's valued by the master. You don't get to determine what that profit looks like he, he defines it. So we've got to learn to think like Jesus think. Otherwise, we will not be able to determine you know, what that would be. Well, let me suggest there's two elements, and we've been talking about it, of what it is to faithfully steward your T3. First of all, you have to be focused on why did God create me? Why am I here? If you're not clear on that and seeking to understand that, then you're not pursuing the will of God for your life. Secondly, you've got to be pursuing the ways of God. How do I go about executing the plan and purpose that God has for me? Well, you've got to understand a biblical worldview, what that means to walk with Jesus biblically. How do I think biblically? How do I speak biblically? How do I act biblically? And one of the signs that you really are born it in will be what happened to Zacchaeus. He encountered Jesus, and it totally changed the way he stewarded his money. You hear that? If you steward your money like the world, there's no evidence of the reality of Christ in you. You got to think about that. We're not saved by works. We manifest that we're saved by works. You hear that? The product of coming to know Jesus Christ is a transformed life where we're growing in Christ and it changes the way we live. So let me just talk about some examples of this. One of the things that happens when you come to Christ and you're growing in Christ is you have new definitions of reality, different definitions. For example, how about the use of money, security and success? You think we might have different definitions? So I've got in column two, I've got a common view and in the right column, I've got a biblical view. And I put common view instead of worldly view because I put worldly view, all of you would dismiss it. Oh, I don't have worldly view. But maybe you'd entertain that you have a common view. Would you entertain that? Maybe you do. Okay, so let's, let's consider what a common view of the use of money is. Most of us, we're brutally honest, 
would say, money is all about funding my will. It's about my pleasure, my convenience, my retirement, my entertainment, etc. It's all about what I want to do. That's what the world says. It's all about me. Biblically, what's, what's the use of money? Why do we have money? What's the purpose of money? Well, it's to do the will of God. Money is nothing more than a tool to do the will of God. Now, think about this. How many of you are, work with your hands? Got screwdrivers and pliers and things like that. A bunch of you do. Now, think about money as being like a screwdriver. That's all it is. It's a tool. You pick it up and use it in the right place at the right time for the right reason. You see, we've got to get a clear clarity that God is all about using money to fund his will. We make money the end-all, be-all. It's defined in everything. Where we live, where we work, what profession we pursue, you know, what we think success and significance and, and security is all about. We, that's all about money for us. You see, it would never, that was never the case for Jesus. He was never about money. Did you know Jesus died broke? You know that? During the last three years of his life, he lived largely off the charity, uh, and mainly charity of women that were following him. They were supporting him out of their own means, is what Luke says. So you look at that and you say, well, gee, was that, is he a success? Huh? Was he a success? Huh? I don't know about that. Now, if we're talking about Bill Gates or Warren Buffett, you know, he's a success because he had a lot of money. But Jesus, I don't know about that. You know what Jesus said about success? He defined it for us in John 17, 4. He said, Father, I brought you glory on earth by completing the work you assigned me to do. You see, Jesus was not trying to build up a nest egg. He was not trying to make as much as you as fast as he could to retire as soon as he could. That was not what he was about. He was about doing the will of the Father. So money was a tool for him to do that. All right, how about security? For most people, security is money. If I got money, then I can buy whatever I need. I can take care of my needs. What's the biblical view of money? The only, only real security in life is Christ. Building your life on Christ. 1 Corinthians 3 makes it clear. At the end of your life, is everybody clear we're going to die apart from the return of Christ? Okay. At the end of our life, then we will give an account. And the, the illustration there is our, our what we've done will pass through a fire. Okay. That's the judgment. And now this is not the judgment for eternal life. This is the judgment for rewards. Two different judgments. So they'll pass through the fire. The only thing that survives the fire is that which is built on Christ. Anything not built on Christ gets burned up. And on some level, that determines our future state, our future existence, responsibilities, opportunities we have in the future. I think it's good, after, good, good that we live in light of the future. That's called strategic living. How about uh, success? World thinks money is the mark of success, and we've already mentioned this. The real mark of success is obedience to God. Okay, one more illustration here. How about new practices? We've got new definitions. How about new practices? Let's look at standard of living, spending, and investing. Okay? So the world would say the common view of the standard of living is you get to define it. I've often heard people say, well, what, what standard of living do you want? As if it's my choice. Like, I get to define that. You know, man, you know, it would be interesting to have a discussion about bankruptcy. And look, at, and I know there are a lot of reasons for bankruptcy. And a lot of you may have been through it. And I'm not 
throw rocks at anybody here. I'm just saying, step back and look at it. What is it? How do people get into that state? Is it trying to impose their will on their life? Impose their standard of living? I think a lot of times that is it. It's not the only reason, but I think that is part of the reason for a lot of people. And that's a common view. And we've made bankruptcy easy in this country, relatively easy. What's the biblical view here of standard of living? Well, it's totally defined by God. It's not our definition. It's his definition. How about spending? Common view is it's all about consumption. The Wall Street pundits every day call you a consumer, right? And they're saying that's what drives the economy. If you want to be prosperous and be lots of jobs, we've got to be consumers. Well, that sounds good and everything, but what is a biblical perspective? Were these, were these uh, servants, these slaves in this story, were they consumers? No, they were not consumers. They were stewards. And certainly the master knew they had needs. Their needs were taken care of. That was not an issue. But they were there to do the bidding of the master. And that's all that they were trying to do. That's why when he, when he came back, he said, you're mine and look what your mine did. When we stand before the Lord, can we say, look what your T3 did. The time that you gave me, the talent you gave me, the treasure you gave me, look what it did. It wasn't me, it was what you gave me. It's your favor, it's what you did. How about investing? world's all about accumulating wealth, right? So you can go retire as soon as you can. Make as much money as you can, as fast as you can, so you can retire as soon as you can. Isn't that what it's all about? Yeah, that's what the world's saying, and it's just assumed. All you got to do is spend a little time watching, you know, the news media. The networks, you can tell I'm not suited for this, this little thing right here. Well, you watch, watch the media a little while, and what do you see? It, they're just consumed with mammon, money. Mammon is another way for the worship, to talk about the worship of money. So this is where the, we're inundated with this every day in the media, all around us, the people that we walk with. This is the common view. It's all about worldly witches, riches. But what Jesus was all about, what the Bible says we need to be doing is trading up. We ought to be acquiring true riches. In fact, in Luke it says this. What qualifies you for real riches, true riches? Remember what it does? It's how you steward worldly wealth. How you steward money lays the foundation for you to then to manage real riches. You see, we got to trade up. I have uh, some props I like to use. I, I have a little golf training tool, and I have a very nice driver. And uh, I bring them out, and the golf training tool, you could never hit a golf ball with it. But the purpose of it is to train you to swing a golf club correctly so that when you pick up the real club, you'll know how to hit it. Well, money is like that training tool. If you don't learn how to steward money biblically, you'll never know how to play in the real game. You see, that's what he's saying here. Okay, let's bring it to conclusion here. How you steward your T3 reveals your relationship with Christ. Just like Zacchaeus, when he encountered Christ, it changed how he stewarded money. So if you haven't seen that in your life, you need to ask the Lord for the grace to to go deeper with him so the transformation is so deep within you that it will change how you view money and how you use money. Secondly, Christians, that is servants, faithfully, that is proactively steward their T3, their time, talent, and treasure, 
doing the will of God according to the ways of God. That should be the agenda in every scenario. In fact, ultimately, the the question, the only relevant question in any situation is, what is the will of the Father? That's the only relevant question. Doesn't matter what it is. Business issue, relational issue, church issue, public policy, it doesn't matter. The question is, what is the will of the Father? And finally, your faithfulness in stewarding your T3 has eternal significance. Isn't that a wonderful thing that God cares enough about us that we have a part to play in his meta narrative, and what we do counts? You really believe that you count? You count in the kingdom? And one of the ways that you demonstrate that you got it, that you count, is how you steward your resources. How you view and use money is a sign of your relationship with Christ. So may the Lord give us all grace, incredible grace, to see and view money biblically and to live it out in our lives. In Jesus' name. Would you stand, please? Father, we do thank you for the word of God that's so rich with truth. May the truth of this text transform us. Change us from thinking like the world to change us to thinking like Jesus Christ and living like Jesus Christ. May we learn to do your will according to your ways. May that be our portion. So, Father, we commit ourselves to you as your servants to do your bidding, to define success according to your success, to define significance according to your definition, to use our resources to do your will. Grant us that grace in Jesus' name.